I'm Carrie Miller, and each week we add a deep track, a book interview from the archives that parallel in some ways the themes of the new discussion. This week, our new author interview is with Caleb Wilde, a sixth-generation funeral director whose new book is titled All the Ways Our Dead Still Speak. We're pairing that with an interview I did in 2019 with Sunita Puri. She's a specialist in palliative care, and she shares her experiences in a memoir titled That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Here's the conversation. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. Coming up, your mail and what to listen, watch, and read in the five. But first, Sunita Puri was nearly finished with medical school when she had an encounter with a woman dying of breast cancer. The intimacy of their conversation and Dr. Puri's discomfort with it would be influential in the medicine she would eventually practice and the way she would come to understand what's needed in the final days and weeks of our lives. Dr. Puri, now an expert in palliative care, writes in her new book that she's become accustomed to talking about fears and regrets, loves and losses. You remind yourself, she writes, to listen to them carefully, to choose your words carefully, because one day you will be on the other side of this conversation and you will long for someone to listen to you. As Dr. Puri joins us, I think we'd both like to know what your family experience has been with palliative care. Has a loved one faced the end of their lives, and did you have compassionate and thoughtful care? Were the medical professionals listening to what you and your loved one wanted and needed? And I'm aware that a number of doctors and nurses listen to this show, so I'd be grateful to hear your reflections about your role in end-of-life care, too. So your family experience with this, perhaps you know, a close, a loved one, a member of your family has gone through this and you emerged on the other side thinking, I wish we'd had this, or that felt exactly the way it should have gone. I really appreciated the way the medical professionals handled that. And if you're in the medical profession, you're a medical practitioner, doctors, nurses, somebody who specializes in palliative care, I'd love your insight on this as well. So here's the phone number, 651-227-6000, on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. Dr. Sunita Puri is Medical Director of Palliative Medicine at Keck Hospital and Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of Southern California. And the new book that we're talking about this hour is titled That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. She's with us today from L.A., and uh, Dr. Perry, welcome. Can we use first names? Is that all right with you through the conversation? Absolutely, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me here. Mm-hmm. It's a real honor. Really, really good to have you. Um, I'd like you to return to that conversation that you had as a new doctor with the patient who was mourning all of the the moments that she wasn't going to share, I think, with a daughter and a granddaughter and how that ended up becoming pretty influential in in the way you practice this kind of medicine. What happened? So back then, I was a fourth-year medical student, just about just weeks away from graduating and becoming a doctor. And up until that point in my education, I hadn't had the training or skills 
to really know how to talk to and listen deeply to somebody who is facing the end of their life. And I still can see her face. She was, you know, a beautiful, striking woman who was in the last legs of her journey with breast cancer, and she was having a lot of trouble sleeping at night. So in my medical student mode, I, you know, wanted to change around her sleep medications, and she still wasn't sleeping well. So the chaplain on the palliative care team asked me whether I had heard of legacy work, and I hadn't. And so the chaplain and I went and sat with this woman and wrote on her behalf a letter that she dictated for her daughter to have and a tape recording of her voice telling her granddaughter what she wanted her to know. And that night, her she was able to sleep really well. And it was something completely non-medical that we had done, but it really opened my eyes to the fact that at the end of our lives and when we're facing a serious illness at any stage, we need more than medicine or we need different things from medicine. We don't just need medications and procedures. We need a doctor, a nurse, a chaplain to sit with us, see and witness and be there with us through our suffering and think out of the box about how we might ease that suffering. So that was an extraordinary experience for me as someone who was just on the cusp of becoming a doctor. You know, I, th- I think it's clear as you related that experience in the book that medical school did not prepare you very well for that. In fact, medical school may have may have um, unprepared you for it because you're told, I think, again and again about the power of distance, and that's what re- is required to practice this kind of medicine. You had to adjust some of what you had learned in your training, it sounds like. Definitely. I think, you know, when you're becoming a doctor, there's such an infinite amount of information to understand about the body's anatomy, physiology, how things can go wrong, and then how we can mobilize the tools in medicine to fix to identify and to fix a problem. But what we're much less focused on is how to talk to people about the medical problems they have, how to know when to bring up very tough discussions about what they might want for themselves if time is short. And I found myself at the end of medical school and early in my residency training having the most fear and anxiety not about whether I was making the right diagnoses for patients necessarily, but about how to talk to them about very difficult positions they were in because they had a serious illness that we may not be able to cure. Some of that must come from something that you acknowledge, which is practicing medicine is really about prolonging life. So how to get on the, on to shift your perspective to, and that's not always the right thing to bring into wherever these these patients are who are who are facing the end of that life and may not need it to be prolonged. Truly, yes. And, you know, it's so ingrained in our medical training and culture and even in the way the public perceives our role as doctors Definitely. that we are supposed to be heroes, we are supposed to beat all odds, and then we expect that of ourselves. And, you know, 
life, human life is a temporary condition. But somehow we forget that in our medical training. And I know early in my training, if I lost a patient, I would take it very personally. It would be about something I had done wrong when, you know, it wasn't usually the case. It was just that that person's body was coming up against its natural limits. And I was very lucky to be raised by parents who are both scientists. My mother's an anesthesiologist and my father's an engineer. And I consider them to be the heartbeat of the book. Um, And they had taught me very early on in life that everything in this life will change and pass, including us. And despite having been raised with that outlook, when I went into medicine, it was that it was it was almost as if I had never heard those lessons. Mm-hmm. You know, that phrase that you just used, the body was coming up against its natural limits is really, I mean, I, I, when I think about it that way, it shifts what seems like a, um, an end. I mean, you know, as I would contemplate the end of my life, I'm saying, this feels more natural the way you describe yes. that than a failure. And that's how we mm-hmm. think of this, I think. I think you're absolutely right. I think even the language I hear patients and families and fellow physicians use about treating patients with a serious illness, things like, we're going to fight this, we're going to overcome this, we're going to beat this, it almost makes, it divides people sick people into winners and losers. And it forgets that whoever we might be, we might be a fighter, right? Mm -hmm. Our spirit might be a fighting spirit, but the body may not be able to fight anymore. And I try to draw that distinction with um, patients and families who are facing a really serious illness, because I think it returns to the body as something natural, something of nature, Mm -hmm. and not something that we can always manipulate and control. Call here from John in Minneapolis. Hi, John. Thanks so much for calling. Hi, John. Are you there? All right. We might have to come back to him. To Doug in Osseo. Hi, Doug. Hi. Thanks for calling into the show. What do you want to tell us? Well, I've done in the past, uh, worked at volunteer in hospice at North Memorial Hospital in Minneapolis. And when my wife was in the, uh, getting towards the end of getting close to dying, I threw a kind of a first anniversary in a row party for her and invited everyone she ever knew. Now, we knew it was coming together to say goodbye. She kind of viewed it as just, it was an anniversary party and invited we had 125 people showed up. They knew why they were coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but she never, because she, she hoped till the last breath that the Lord was going to heal her. And it, other than divine intervention, that wasn't going to happen. But I found that invite all your friends when they can say goodbye, when you can tell them you love them. And, and everybody mm-hmm. kind of knows what's, what's coming. It's just beautiful. It makes a funeral almost anticlimactic. Wow. Mm-hmm. Sunita, is that a technique that some patients want and use? I think that's such a brilliant idea, and I'm so glad that you shared it. You said so much that I want to respond to. Um, One, just the statement that we should be as alive as we can, 
no matter where we are on our journey. We should invite our friends over to celebrate whatever it is we have to celebrate while we still can. I think that's a very powerful way to just live one's life and to continue to live as fully as possible, even when we are facing a certain end, is an act of bravery. So I salute you and your wife for what, how you approach that phase. And I think the other notable thing you said that I can't resist responding to is that she maintained her faith and her hope in a miracle, even when she was on hospice. And I always encourage my patients to continue to hope for what they hope for, and that hospice is not meant to take that hope away. It's meant to support you in whatever you hope for and to keep you comfortable. So you just said so many things I really value. Thank you. Dr. Sunita Puri is with us if you've just tuned in to the conversation. Her new book is That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. And if you've caught just the beginning here, she's talking a bit about how this is a blend of memoir, um, the influence of her parents, her mother as an anesthesiologist, her father as an engineer, and then what happened as she went through medical school and became more interested in practicing palliative care, uh, how young doctors are trained in this, how she began through interactions with patients and other mentors um, to understand what palliative care could be. And as we continue our conversation, I think we'd love to hear from you if you've been through this with a, a loved one. What stands out about the compassionate and thoughtful care that your loved one got? How could it have been better if you work in this field? Now, a lot of medical practitioners tune into the show. I'd like to know your your reflections on uh, on end-of-life care, your role in it, how it could be better, what actually works, maybe some, maybe some stories that, uh, that feed this, uh, our overall investigation this hour about good palliative care. 651-227-6000, 800-242-2828, on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. Mike says on Twitter, your guest story is lovely. I would ask, how does the system of healthcare allow that sort of interaction? I'm a practicing physician that deals with end of life daily with patients, but our systems do not value. And then he has a, a symbol for money uh, in parentheses, the interactions described. I'm sure you've encountered that, Sunita. What can you say? I certainly have encountered it, and my my sympathy goes out to this person who wrote because I think the time crunch and the lack of support in our medical system for these conversations is a universal reason why sometimes we don't have these discussions about what patients want if their time is short. Um, I. I think that my hope is that as palliative care gains momentum, part of what we will be able to do is actually train other physicians on how to have these discussions even in a time crunch and how to have them early enough so that when things take a turn for the worse in a patient's life and with their disease, that we're not needing quite as much time to have some of those discussions. Earlier discussions and knowing when to start them can actually spare us time 
as things progress, because at that point, we've already been in discussion with patients and families. There are so many ways, though, that our healthcare system needs to change to help the principles of palliative medicine be applied to patients no matter where they are in healthcare, well before the time of a serious diagnosis. Um, and it's always been an irony to me that we have the time and space in palliative care to treat patients as a whole person, but we are not granted the support from our system to do the same thing earlier on. And I can only hope that things will start to change because truly they have to. You know, when I've been talking about your book to my friends, one of the things that has stood out to me that I've been sharing is your note that in medical school, there is very little discussion about human suffering. And I Mm -hmm. I just wanted to quote some of what you said about that. You write, I memorized how to diagnose and treat a panoply of illnesses without considering how a person might suffer, regardless of whether we could cure their ailments or not. I think you've struck at the heart of what scares people who are maybe encountering the end of their life, that will we do things that the doctor technically and the medical team technically knows how to do, but will they remember there's a human here and there's there's going to be pain and suffering attached to that? Mm-hmm. And I think the words suffering and dignity, which I use on a daily basis with my with my patients, those are words and concepts I never heard in medical school and even in residency. Um, it was only really in my palliative care training that I started to pay a lot of attention to the experiences people had of suffering, physical, emotional, and spiritual, and also to just ask people, What aspects of their dignity would they not want to lose if they were going through certain treatments or going through the advancement of a disease? And I think I'm trying to really try and remember when in medical school I started to lose a focus on the whole human being. Um, And I think it really is part of how we are socialized to think of patients as a list of problems. And to some extent in your training, you have to learn how to do that. But I think when that is all we do, and I know for myself, it was all I did for some time, you don't feel like the doctor you wanted to be. Because Mm. I think many of us came into medicine to be of service to humanity. Mm. And how can you be of service to humanity if you forget the humanity of your patients? Call from William in Mankato. Hi, William. It sounds like you have medical experience, yes? Yeah, I um, work in the ICU here in Mankato, and it's just so crazy to me how we um, we're, we know that we're all going to die, and yet nobody, we're so accustomed to never talking about it until all of a sudden I've got so many times where patients come in, they're unresponsive, they're intubated. So they can't make their decision and the family has to make it for them and just seeing the pain of the family having to make these hard decisions about whether to go comfort cares or to continue with treatment and just having that conversation beforehand with families, with doctors, with whatever you have about what you look towards at the end of your life and living maybe not 
the most number of the days, but maybe the best number of days you have. So, William, is that something that you've been able to usher families into those conversations if they haven't had them? Or are you often an, an observer as they, you know, in these difficult, these 11th hours, as Sunita's book says, uh, you know, as they're trying to figure this out? Thankfully, we have a, a terrific palliative care team where I'm at. So they do most of the discussion, but just in like, they usually have one meeting where they talk about everything. But then most of the time throughout, in the, like I work night shifts. So in the middle of the night when families worrying about stuff and think of something new and ask me and just talking them through like kind of what the patient would want. And a lot of times it's, they look for me for an answer and I don't have one because I, I mean, I'm, I only see this patient as what I can see in the notes since they're right. like unresponsive. And then, but talking the family kind of through what they think the family would want and kind of, I mean, coming to peace with what for the family is a big part of this. So difficult if that's the first time that the family and the patient themselves have, have really faced that, right? In that moment of crisis. Yeah, yeah, it's mm-hmm. so difficult for them. Yeah, Sunita? Uh, I salute you for the work you do in the ICU. I think it is what you describe is the experience of so many of the ICU attendings and fellows that I work with where someone very critically ill, oftentimes who has not been doing well and been living with chronic diseases before this one final blow shows up, you admit them in the middle of the night, you don't know them, and it's very distressing for you and for the family to have to really contend with what's happening and make some very difficult calls. And I couldn't agree more that talking about um, what someone would want for themselves in a critical situation, if we can acknowledge that death is coming, especially if you are living with an illness we can't cure, like a metastatic cancer, the earlier we can look that fact in the face and think about the limits of treatment we would want for ourselves, the it's a truly a gift, not only to ourselves, but to our families, who will then be spared some of the guesswork. I think sometimes even when we do dictate our wishes really beautifully, there are times where families are still you know, unsure whether those wishes are really the ones to be followed. So these are complex discussions. Sometimes families fight with each other about whether giving one last try to some to a loved one would make the most sense. And I think that's where I would love to see us as physicians step forward a bit and make some recommendations about what might be in someone's best interest. To some, that might smack of paternalism. But I will say that some of the most profound conversations I've had with families and patients have been the times where I've found the courage to say, these are the treatments that may advance his quality of life, and these are the ones that won't. And so I would not recommend them. And I can't tell you the numbers of times families have said to me, thank you for making that call because I didn't have to then. And I don't make those recommendations unless I really believe they're in the patient's best interest. But when I do, I have very seldom faced resistance because by that point in a patient's illness, it tends to be very obvious that, for example, 
CPR will not help them if they are dying of a metastatic cancer and a terrible pneumonia. So that's the thing. That's the one thing I would really love to see us as doctors become more comfortable with is making a recommendation. Because even if the family disagrees with it, at least it becomes a point where we're not asking them in a vacuum what someone would want for themselves. Because that is very difficult for many families to respond to. You know, I, I do note your use of the word paternal, and that's that's the balance, right? Not to be stepping mm-hmm. in to say, I'm the expert, and here's what you should do, to really give families the voice, but also to be the guide, mm-hmm. um, to, because this is the most difficult of times for families to, to make clear decisions, too, if if the patient has not given them guidance on that. Exactly. I mean, an analogy I can draw is, you know, I've recently started going to someone to help me do my taxes. And when she turned to me and said, would you like to do this or would you like to do this? I turned to her and I said, you're the expert. Why don't (laughs) you? I have no idea about this world. And so, you know, what would your recommendation be? And I think in medicine, sometimes we feel like the patient and family have to make all the decisions. Mm. But I think the feedback I've gotten from the patients and families I've cared for over the years has been that they very much valued the honesty with which myself and other physicians I work with can come to them and say, you know, given everything going on, what about this approach to your loved one's care? What if we do X, Y, and Z? What are your thoughts on that? Because I think to talk about what someone would want for themselves in a vacuum puts families and patients in a very difficult situation that, you know, we are not really being their guides. Rachel says, we lost my mother-in-law three years ago to brain cancer. She had been an RN for 30 years and a chaplain for 10 years. She knew what the diagnosis meant and opted out of surgery. She knew she wanted the few months she had to be as comfortable as possible. And here's Jenny in St. Paul. Jenny, what's your experience with this? Um, I am a pretty new nurse um, of three years. Mm-hmm. I work in a hybrid telemetry ICU unit, and then casually I work at um, a hospice in St. Paul, which has been a really beautiful experience. And for me, kind of the difficulty and the the hard part is um, for people that don't have an advanced directive and don't have a clear plan over what they want to have at the end of their life Mm -hmm. is family having to struggle with the decision and having to make the decision. Do we still fight, especially when the diagnosis isn't so clear or do we move on to hospice? And so I see on one end how dignified and beautiful the end of death, the end of life process can be where you have people that are experts and death and dying that can help a patient Mm -hmm. have a good experience and have kind of that quality over quantity. But then you also have the family member just kind of like, should we keep fighting? You know, is this something that we owe our patient? And so I think that seeing both sides of it, it's kind of seeing the importance of one, an advanced directive and having those wishes and conversations before a patient gets to that point. But also kind of, you know, seeing these very gray areas 
of should the fight continue or should we move on to something different? You know, Jenny, um, there's a lot there. I also want to talk about the language of, Mm -hmm. you know, how we approach this. So, Sunita, we'll get a look at the latest news. Think about that, and then and then we'll we'll cover what Jenny is asking, but also talk a bit about what it means when we use phrases like fighting, how that influences mm-hmm. the way we think about this. Dr. Sunita Puri with us. We're talking about her new book and her experience as a palliative care specialist, hearing from a lot of you that are in this field. I love that. Thank you so much. And also hearing from family members who have gone through this uh, with loved ones and emerged saying that that was an experience that I hope I have when it's my moment to make some of these decisions, or it could have been better. And here's why. If you get a busy signal on the phone lines, Please feel free to tweet in if, if you can. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. And we'll get to as many of you on the phone lines as we can. 651-227-6800-242-2828. Dr. Sunita Puri with us talking about her new book, That Good Night, Life in Medicine in the 11th Hour. And Sunita, uh, Jenny was asking about when the diagnosis isn't totally clear and families and patients uh, questions and needs aren't totally clear. What do you do? I think in those situations, one of the most powerful questions that I've started to I've learned to ask people is, tell me what you understand about what's going on for you or your loved one medically. And it forces people to really think about what they know and what they don't know. And it gives me a way into the conversation by giving them the information that I have as a doctor about what about the situation they're facing. And there's countless times where, as, as she mentioned, people don't really understand the diagnosis or they think that the widespread cancer that their loved one has is curable when, in fact, it is not. And I think starting from that place of information gives us the foundation in which we can start talking about what someone would or wouldn't want for themselves. But they have to first understand the exact context in which we're having this discussion. So I find that a very powerful question. Do do you avoid language like you can fight it? Or I, I mean, how do you think about the words that you use? So that's a great question. And I think, you know, I was always a writer before I became a doctor. Mm -hmm. And so in writing this book, a very big concern of mine was to problematize the language that we use or don't use in talking about end-of-life care, death and dying, suffering and dignity. And I was wondering, Carrie, if I might just read a quick paragraph from the book that explores that, because there's a chapter in the book called Fight. And it is both about the fight that I and an ICU physician had with the children of a very sick patient But it is also about that word, fight, fighter, that we rely on in our lexicon of how we experience dying and disease and suffering. So this is just a very quick passage from the book. What did these fighting words actually mean to the people who used them? 
Their use had become so pervasive that they were now the descriptors for anyone confronting mortality. Fighters wanted everything done to treat their disease. Fighters hoped for miracles. They didn't always entertain a discussion of quote-unquote giving up. Some physicians I knew interpreted the descriptor fighter as an indication that they should provide all treatments possible, regardless of their harm. I had seen many a conversation stalled with the use of these phrases and began to wonder if the way to advance a challenging discussion was to explore these word choices, to force clarity about what fighting for a miracle might mean in a very specific set of unfortunate circumstances. After all, didn't the word fight imply a conflict? Did the fighter grasp the complexity and nuance of the battle? What did the fighter know about his or her enemy? How specifically did they understand the consequences of the fight and what they were fighting for? How did they define giving up? What was worth fighting for? And with what consequences for the battleground, which was inevitably one's body and life? Could there be miracles aside from curing a disease, especially if that is not possible? So that's a paragraph from that chapter. And it was really, you know, I reflected a lot when I was in my palliative care training about how to explore what people meant when they used that word, what people meant when they talked about the binary of fighting or giving up, which I think is a very toxic binary, um, what they meant when they wanted, quote unquote, everything done, what they meant when they wanted a miracle, what did those things actually look like for them? When I was a resident, I would hear these words and not really probe what people mm -hmm. meant. Mm -hmm. But I think what was so beautiful in my palliative care training was that I learned to move towards these words and ask people to help me understand why they were using them and what they meant. Uh, Maddie and Anoka called to say there needs to be more focus on family-level connection. When my grandmother passed away, my mom and dad were too busy and emotional to really help us kids understand. There needs to be more help to all family members so they can move forward better. To the phones here to Jane in St. Paul. Jane, thank you so much for waiting. I do know it's been a while, but thank you for, for waiting to chat with us. Well, you are welcome. This is such a riveting conversation. I'm glad. Um, my husband um, died at 50, and we went through hospice. And I, like everybody else, had not given much thought to death or what we wanted that to look like. Or, and my experience in hospice was that there were many times when I felt like I wasn't really seen. Um, they had their computers up and they were inputting stuff and they have jobs to do and not necessarily the time to sit with people during these moments of real suffering. Mm -hmm. um, they give you this comfort kit that has, you know, things to dry up the secretions at the back of the throat and morphine. And they told me, just put it away until you need it. And to me, it felt like I had just introduced the Death Star into my house. It was like, Mm -hmm. I This makes me so uncomfortable, and there was no one to talk about that. So I had lots of these moments, and then he died, and I had a real 
you know, life awakening, like it's short, what are you here for? Get busy on that. And so I became an end-of-life doula. Oh. And, mm. and now I work in hospice because I felt like there are these moments that need to be addressed. Like the last caller said, the family's not involved. Um, and a doula could provide the continuity of care. It would be really great if we got involved when someone got a terminal diagnosis. To say, you know, I, I heard a statistic once that that meeting when someone gets a terminal diagnosis, say it's 45 minutes, 40 of those minutes are, are devoted to the treatment plan. Hmm. So little is devoted into opening that parallel track of like this death, you know, it's going to happen eventually. So maybe we should talk about it now. Maybe we should plan about it. Think about what you want for that time. Um, I think a lot of airtime goes to advanced care directives versus like a full-on death plan. Like, how do you want to die? Where do you want to be? What people do you want there? What people do you not want there? What yeah. do you want to smell? What do you want to see? Um, and then having that be a full family conference discussion. So the parents or whoever is dying has a chance to say to their kids, this is why I want this. So there'll be less opportunity for conflict down the road. Jaina, um, I'm I'm interested in whether how many other end of life uh, doulas you associate with and compare. Are, are there many out there? Well, in the Twin Cities metro, um, there are more and more all the time, which is good because we're getting ready for the silver tsunami, right? I mean, we're going to need this kind of support. So I'm a, a founding member of the Minnesota Death Collaborative, which we really hope will be a kind of one-stop shop for people who are facing this. They can find all kinds of professionals in death-related things um, to educate themselves, to find resources. So people go into this so much better equipped so they wow. can ask the doctors for what they need instead of like blindly following along in this area where you have zero expertise and a lot of stress and a lot of emotion. Like I use the analogy with hospice. It's sort of like our public schools, right? So many of our society's shortcomings end up on the doorstep of hospice. And, you know, the average stay is 11 to 14 days. Mm. So that's the amount of time that you have to learn how to die. Jane, and most people are in denial until the end. I, I, re I love the idea of this. I'm so glad you called. Do you, uh, Sunita, utilize the services of end-of-life doulas? So, um, you know, I think what she's bringing up is very important. I don't work with an end-of-life doula myself, but I do. I have had a few patients, just a handful, who have made use of doula services, and I think they can be really invaluable. Um, and I think what she's getting at is also something really important for everyone to remember, which is that death and dying, certainly medicine can help, but death and dying is also something that's deeply human and much bigger than medicine. And I think utilizing other sources of support in addition to hospice is a very, very good idea. I do want to say a few things about my experience with hospice because mm – -hmm. I my first year out of my training, I worked as a hospice doctor and I covered South Los Angeles, which is a place where many of my patients died an average of 10 years 
younger than people in the more affluent areas of Los Angeles, and they died with fewer resources and support even when they were on hospice services. I think our country has to really look at hospice and see its beauty, but see how much more wonderful it could be if we funded it better and if we expanded the scope of hospice and what it can do for patients. Um, So in her comments about the limited support she got from hospice. I have definitely heard that. And I think it's a matter of really us looking at hospice and seeing what can we do to maximize the benefit that hospice can provide patients and families. Um, But I also think that the same inequalities that people live with are the inequalities that they die with. And that was something as a hospice doctor, I felt very unequipped to face and to handle. So I could have two patients with advanced dementia. One had a very involved family and the other had, you know, children who had to work multiple jobs to just stay afloat. And I couldn't care for them both equally because of the circumstances of one family's life. And that is the sort of thing where better funding for hospice could allow us to provide caregivers at home, just as one example. Uh, Sunita, I'm going to recommend the book to everyone for the details of your experience and your advice, but also for the conversations that you've had about this with your mother, which are just fantastic because it is as much memoir as um, the story of how to make this experience better. So thank you. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Dr. Sunita Puri's book is called That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. 